this morning. Jesus, forgive my sins. Forgive the sins that I remember and the sins I have forgotten. Forgive the times when I have failed in the face of temptation. Forgive the times I have been arrogant and yet failed to boast in Your works. Forgive the times I have harshly judged others and yet not judged myself by those same standards. Forgive the times I have caused pain to others and not sought forgiveness. Father, have mercy on me because of Your Son, Jesus. Through His broken body, make me whole. Amen. Let's pause for a moment of silent individual confession. Children of God, sons and daughters of the great King, the assurance that you have that God has forgiven your sin does not rest on the sincerity of anything you've just prayed or the accuracy of the prayer that we confess or pray together. Your assurance of pardon does not rest on the fact that you've promised and sworn before the Lord never to do these bad things again. It doesn't rest in the fact that you've overall been a better person than a bad person. Your assurance comes from one thing, and that is the Word of God alone, that He is gracious to you. Not because you are faithful do you receive His forgiveness, but in faith you receive it. Think on that. God does not reward your faith with forgiveness. Instead, He has given you freely forgiveness, and you accept it as an act of faith. And we hear of that in Romans chapter 1. Verses 16 through 17, Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In that assurance, we go to our Heavenly Father in prayer together. Would you join me as we pray? Thank you, God, for the power of the gospel that we have in Jesus Christ. Thank you that it is powerful enough to gather believers all over the world, all throughout the week, for the praise and glory of your name and your Son, Jesus Christ, in the name of the Holy Spirit. In that name, Lord, we pray that you would strengthen the churches, strengthen our brothers and sisters across the country and across the world. Help us to resist in the face of temptation. Help us to courageously uh, love one another, even our enemies. Pray for not just our church, but the churches in our area who are faithfully preaching and living out the Gospel. I pray that You would strengthen the the reading, the, the hearing, and the preaching of Your Word and the singing of Your Word this morning. That through those things that You have ordained providentially, that Jesus Christ would be glorified 
that people would see how much Jesus is better than all the other things that compete for our worship. That people would see the emptiness that is at the end of every other journey uh, of worship. That people would see how hollow all other endeavors are. And that they would see that Jesus alone is worthy of our worship. We pray for our missionaries all around the world. We pray for uh, Jonathan. Pray that you would strengthen him and his family as he endeavors to, to do your work, as he preaches the gospel faithfully. Pray that you would give him encouragement, that you would send others as well for, for help, and that he would be able to see fruit in his ministry, uh, and that again your name would be glorified. Lord, take these gifts, take these uh, financial gifts that we are about to give, that your church is about to give, this, these financial gifts that are ultimately yours to begin with. And, and I pray that you would use them for the growing of your kingdom and for the honoring of your name. And we pray this all in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. To the mountains, where does my help come from? My help comes from you, maker of heaven, creator of the earth. Oh, how I need you, Lord, you are my only my only prayer so I will wait for you to come and rescue me to come and give me life oh how I need you oh how I need you Lord you are my only hope you are my only so I will wait for you to come and rescue me, to come and give me life. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from you, maker of heaven, creator of the earth. I invite you to please stand as we sing our doxology together. The doxology where we confess that the triune God has given us everything and all that we have given this morning is just a giving back of His good gifts to us. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise
praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Take my life and let it be Consecrated, Lord, to Thee Take my moments and my days Let them flow in ceaseless praise Let them flow in ceaseless praise Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee swift and beautiful for thee take my voice and let me sing Always only for my King Take my lips and let them be Filled with messages from Thee Filled with messages from Thee Take my silver and my gold not a might would I withhold Take my intellect and use Every power as thou shalt choose Every power as thou shalt choose Take my will and make it thine it shall be no longer mine. Take my heart, it is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord, I pour. At thy feet its treasure store Take myself and I will be Ever only all for thee Ever only all for thee Please be seated. And as you are, you can turn in your Bibles to Esther. We'll be starting in chapter 2, but at this time, uh, the children can, can, they don't have to, but they can be dismissed for their training time upstairs where they learn what it is to worship. They learn what a sermon is. They learn all sorts of things to prepare them to worship. But you who are not young children... You can turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 2. We'll be jumping around. We'll read a passage uh, in Esther chapter 2 and in Esther chapter 3. But we'll be covering basically Esther chapter 2 through 4. So starting in Esther chapter 2, verse 21, here now, these words. Verses 21 and 22. 
In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. Jump now to verse, or chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were with, who were at the king's gate, bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. And lastly, starting in verse 8 of that same chapter, Haman goes to King Ahasuerus and said, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Uh, Pray with me. Thank you, Lord, for this word, this word that comes from you. Though this story happened thousands of years ago, uh, I pray that you would renew it afresh in our hearts and in our minds. Help us to remember the wonderful truths uh, contained in here and how they point to our Savior, our King, our righteous King, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. When he was uh, still a presidential candidate and nobody really knew his name, uh, Ronald Reagan gave a speech entitled, uh, A Time for Choosing. And in it, he mainly talks about political things, tax reform, so on and so forth. But he notes that many of the decisions that were upcoming in that election were about freedom. And he correctly notes that how Americans decided on that issue, on all these other issues, would affect their freedom. It would have ripple effects that would affect everything about America. An issue he believed was a matter of right and wrong. And so he writes in this now famous speech, If we are to believe that nothing is worth the dying, when did this begin? Should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery rather than dare the wilderness? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots of Concord Bridge have refused to fire the shot heard round the world? Are we to believe that all the martyrs of history died in vain? He continues, We can preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, and he believed that was America. Or we can sentence them to take the first step into a thousand years of darkness if we fail. And here's what I want you to hone in on. If we fail, at least let our children and our children's children say of us, we justified our brief moment here. We did all that could be done. Why do I read this to you? Um, 
throughout this series in Esther, we, we're, we have been and we're going to talk about how nothing is left to chance, how God is completely in control of everything. And last week, you heard that word that we used to describe that called God's providence. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, one of our, one of our documents that we believe correctly summarizes Scripture, we, we see this question and answer, question 18. What are God's works of providence? And the answer we get from Scripture is that God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all His creatures, ordering them and all their actions to His own glory. Another way to describe God's providence is to say that God is completely in control. He makes everything happen the way He wants it to. So we have God's Word telling us God is completely in control. But we also have God's Word telling us that our choices matter. So if nothing is left to chance because God is completely in control, what is the point of anything? Why would I stress about making choices? And especially, why would I work hard to make the right choices? It's easy to believe our choices don't really matter because God is in control, but we'll see this morning three things. Three things from this passage. Number one, that God uses bad choices. Number two, that God blesses good choices. And finally, that God rules despite our choices. Now, there are a few bad choices in this story. Uh, I'm sure you know them. Uh, we saw King Ahasuerus promote Haman, a bad guy. And then more than promote him, he actually gave him money to eliminate an entire group of people. Then we saw the outright evil choice of of Haman when he plans to eliminate the people of God. And what does God do with all of these bad choices? He uses them. Here's where we have to here's where we have to pause um, before we continue because there's a, there's an important point we need to address right now. This is an extreme story. You you have to understand how scripture how God uses scripture in order to understand how we can apply it today. Many passages of the Bible present an extreme example in order to make a point that if this extreme thing can happen like this, then this other non-extreme thing is no problem by comparison. Um, for example, it, like when, you, when you're buying a bookcase, that's the thing that has many bookshelves inside of it. Uh, wh- when you're buying a bookcase, each bookshelf is rated for weight, right? You don't want the bookshelves that are rated for 10 pounds. No, you want the shelves that are rated for 50 pounds, 100 pounds. Why? You're not going to do pull-ups off these bookcases, but you want to make sure that no matter what you put on there, the bookshelves are going to hold. You want an extreme example. You want some guy on TV telling you, these shelves can hold a rhinoceros. You're never going to put a rhinoceros on these shelves, but you want to know that if it can do this extreme thing, then it can do the thing that you want to do with it. Likewise, God oftentimes uses this extreme example. He provides comfort to those going through extreme circumstances. We might not have a king looking to eliminate us because of what we believe, but there are other people in the world for which this exact thing is happening. But even for us, to you who are maybe not going through such an extreme situation, 
you have the same comfort. Because if God can preserve and redeem His people in this extreme circumstance, how much more so can He do so in yours? How much more so can God use the bad choices of your boss, the bad choices of your parents growing up, the bad choices of classmates who bullied you, the bad choices of those in government, and even your own unwise and evil choices, and use them. That's what God does. Now, what do we do? When faced with the unwise and evil choices of others, we are called to lament. If any, if any children are using the red folders, uh, to lament means to cry out to God in sadness or anger because we trust that He is in control. And so we lament. We cry out to God in sadness or in anger because we trust that He is providentially ordaining all things. He is in control. Look at chapter 4, verses 1-3. through three, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, what did he do? He tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and ashes. He went into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. What did the other people do? In every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Do not think that just because God is in control, that God is teaching you never to lament, never to question, never to doubt, never to be angry. It's quite the opposite. Because He is in control, because it is He who is ordaining all things, He calls you to cry out in sadness or in anger, but to Him. Go to Him with all of these things. That's what we see in many places, but especially in places like Psalm chapter 10. In Psalm chapter 10, the psalmist writes, Why? Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Sound like Esther? Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. And yet, we don't just cry out to God in sadness or in anger, but we cry out to God in sadness or in anger because He is in control. Because of the rest of the psalm, we trust that God is wise and powerful enough to use even bad choices for His purposes. That's why the psalmist cries out, Lord, You hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline Your ear to do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more so that You may not fear any more. Preach that to yourself, Christian when your own heart deceives you and tells you that you have made too many bad choices, that the choices of those around you are are too much for God to use you, for God to work out His plans, preach this to yourself. God is in control. Remind yourself that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. God can use your bad choices. Remind yourself that nothing is happening to you outside of your good God's control. He can use bad choices. When the kings of this world make decisions that are evil and unwise, remind yourself that Jesus, the one true king, is already victorious. And he is so powerful, he is so awesome, that he can use even evil for his good purposes. That is a God worth worshiping. Amen?
Amen. But none of that, none of that means God can't, that our choices don't matter. None of that means that our choices don't matter. Just because God uses bad choices for His own purposes does not mean that we should not strive to make good choices because as certainly as God uses bad choices, He also blesses good choices. Look in uh, Esther chapter 2. We see that Mordecai learns of this plan as he was sitting at the king's gate. And two of the king's units who guarded the threshold became angry and they sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. That's the situation. There's a plot to harm the king, most likely to kill him. You have to kind of read between the lines. And Mordecai has a choice. Do we stay quiet? Because it's none of my business after all. Or does he do the right thing? And Mordecai has the words of Jeremiah flowing through his mind. A a quick note before we go to Jeremiah. Uh, The books of the Bible that, that you have in your Bible and even in the Hebrew Bible are not written chronologically. So just because Jeremiah comes after Esther does not mean that that's how it was written chronologically. Uh, actually, the, the story of Esther takes place over a hundred years after Jeremiah wrote his words. So it is probable, it is most likely that Esther and Mordecai had the words of Jeremiah in their minds. And these are some of the words that they would have had in mind. The words that God told to all the exiles whom he sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He writes this. What do you do in exile? What do you do in a foreign land? Build houses. Live in them. Plant gardens. Eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease but seek the welfare, seek the well-being, the prosperity of the city. Seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Why? Because in its welfare you will find your own. The words of God to his people in exile, the words that Mordecai would have had in mind. And so what does Mordecai do in light of that? We see in verse 22. When this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told it to the king in the name of Mordecai. He makes the right choice. That's great. I want to review with you three things that we need to, that we need to understand about how God blesses good choices. We'll go through them quickly. Number one, there is always a good choice. Number two, Good choices are not always easy choices. And number three, we make good choices because God blesses them. So number one, there is always a good choice. I'm getting that from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. You probably know it. Where the Apostle Paul writes to the church, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful because with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That means, Christian, here's the good news, you will never be faced with an option where all the options are bad. I'm reminded of of Chariots of Fire, um, where Eric Liddell uh, was given option A to run 
on a day where he believed it was a sin to run. B, to not run in the Olympics. Those were his two choices, right? Well, he chose option C. I'm going to run in a different race altogether that happens on a different day, and I'm going to do extremely well in that race. There's never, you are never faced with this dichotomy of evil and not as much evil. You are never faced with an option where the only choice you have is the lesser of two evils. There is always a way to escape, always a way to make a God-glorifying choice that God blesses. Even though this God-glorifying choice may not be easy because good choices are not always easy choices. Look at Esther chapter 4, verse 11. Mordecai sends word that Esther needs to go to the king and stop Haman's plan, and Esther replies, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's promises know, that's another way of saying everyone knows, that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one choice, there is but one law to be put to death, except to the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. That was her option. Do the right thing and potentially die or let it go and more likely keep your life because remember, Esther was in the good graces of the king. Again, this is an extreme example. Most of us aren't faced with this choice of do the right thing and potentially die or not and potentially live. And yet, if God provides a way, if God blesses these extreme good choices, how much more so does he have the power and ability and desire to do so in our more common, less extreme choices? And our last comfort is number three. There is always a good choice. Good choices are not always easy. But number three, God blesses good choices. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus goes into this discourse about giving, praying, and fasting. And on all three topics, he gives a warning in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Here's why we're using this verse. Jesus goes on to say, in light of this, so don't, uh, don't pray so that others can hear how spiritual you are. Don't fast so that others will see how holy you are. Don't give so that others can see how generous you are. Why? Because that won't happen? No, the opposite. Because that might happen. You might receive that reward. What's the bad news about that? That's all you're going to get. So, yes, Esther could have chosen to save her own life. And she might have received that reward. But that's it. And the whole point of Matthew 6, the whole point of Esther, is that there's a better choice that glorifies God and is better for his plans and his purposes. You don't want the empty praise of men. You don't want the physical rewards that this earth has to offer. You want the rewards that your Father in heaven gives you. That's why Jesus continues in chapter 6 by urging us to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy. And Jesus can say this. Our King can say this because when we are in Him, when we are in Christ, our old heart, that more often tended towards what is selfish than what is loving, what is easy rather than what is right, 
what brings immediate pleasure rather than lasting joy. That heart, the good news of the gospel, is that it it has been replaced by a new heart. And this new heart is becoming more and more like the heart of Jesus as we seek His good pleasure, His will rather than our own. That is the good news of the gospel. Not that we need to make good choices in order for things to work out, but that we have been given the heart that is capable of good choices, capable of doing what pleases the Lord, capable of actually making good choices. That's the good news of the gospel. Not just that Jesus made all the right choices and you need to be like him, but because Jesus made all the right choices and you are in him, you are now capable in him, through him, by him, to do the things that please God. That is the good news of the gospel. And so as we read all throughout Scripture, Christians, I urge you, do good works. Fight the temptations of your heart. Love your neighbor as, your, as yourself, even your enemies. Do all that you can to, as Mr. Reagan said, justify your brief moment on this earth. But also rest. Because yes, God blesses good choices. But also because God not only uh, uses bad choices, but God rules despite our choices. God uses bad choices. God blesses good choices. But God rules despite our choices. There's great comfort in knowing that the course of human history, even the course of my own story, is not wholly dependent on my choices. I am not the sum of my choices, as you will hear so often in the world, because God rules despite our choices. In chapter 4 of Esther, um, word reaches Esther about Haman's plan to eliminate her people. So as we read, Mordecai tells her to do something about it because, yes, God is sovereign and in complete control, but the way he exercises that control is often through our choices. So he tells Esther to act. Do all that can be done. Your choices matter. But Esther responds with concern. Because as we read earlier in chapter 4, not yet, sorry, not yet. As we read earlier in chapter 4, if anyone comes into the king's chamber unannounced, there was one law, death. So Mordecai sends a reply to Esther's concern. We already read Esther's concern. Here now is Mordecai's reply, and it's filled with this wonderful piece of theology that I'd love us to chew on for a little bit. Esther chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Mordecai says to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Okay, Your, your, your choices matter. Then he continues, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Do you see the theology that is just jam-packed into these two little verses? Your choices matter, Esther. If you keep silent, there are consequences. You and your father will die. But on a grander scale, God is not dependent on you. If you do keep silent, there are consequences, but relief and deliverance will rise 
for God's people from another place. If you lie, Christian, there are consequences. You have experienced those. And yet God's truth remains. If you sin, there are consequences. Scripture graciously warns us of that. And yet, and yet, God's plan for redeeming this world and saving His people remains. God still rules despite whatever choices we make or do not make. It's it's kind of like the real estate market right now. It's there. But if you don't buy it, don't worry. Someone else will. There's a glorious inevitability to the providence of God. And that gives you and me the freedom and peace to make decisions because you know history is headed towards a glorious resolution. God created the world. God sent His Son to purchase His people by, the blood, by His blood on the cross. Through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, Satan and death are already defeated. And Jesus already sits on the throne where He is ruling and making all things new. And one day soon, we'll see that glorious resolution. We will see all things made new. We will see every tear every sadness, every sorrow wiped away, every bad choice eliminated and reversed. We will see that. So yes, we should lament when we or others make bad choices. Yes, we should rejoice and and trust that God blesses good choices and we should fight and strive with everything in our being through and in Jesus Christ to make good choices that God blesses. But most of all, and and don't miss this, the fact that God rules despite our choices should cause us to worship, to do what we are gathered here this morning to do. Because when we look at the history of redemption, what God has done through Jesus Christ, there are things that make no sense that God has used to bring glory to His name. For example, King Jesus sits on his throne and rules despite our choices. And yet, he commands us and enables us to do the right thing, to make the choices that carry out his plans. So I urge you, I urge you, Christian, in love, in grace, by the power of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit to fight, to have it said of you that you did all you could for the kingdom of God, but to do so, To do so, not in despair, not with the sense that it's all up to me, but to do so in bold confidence, knowing that your King Jesus rules and nothing can stop his plans. Amen? And finally, I urge you to worship. When the the plans of God make no sense to you, I'd like to remind you of Paul's words in Romans chapter 11. They will be on your screens behind me, and I invite you to say them with me in unison. We say when we we don't understand things, we worship God with these words saying, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. 
To Him be glory forever. Amen. Pray with me. Dear God, thank You. Thank You for Jesus Christ who, despite our choices, despite the choices of those around us, those in power, those not in power, those in authority and not in authority, thank You that Jesus Christ rules. And yet we also thank You that though we are but men and women, though we are but humans, You have ordained it so that our choices do matter. You have ordained it so that Your, your plans and Your will are carried out by human choices. How, how unsearchable are Your ways. The depths of the knowledge and the wisdom and the power of God we cannot understand. And yet, we trust, we worship, we praise your holy name. And we do all of this through our King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. To him be glory. To him be glory because in the glorious providence of God, God himself made a choice. A a choice not to leave us in our sins. A choice to, to send His Son, Jesus Christ, to be a man, a different kind of man. A man that would perfectly make all the right choices and be faced with all the bad choices around Him. He faced Peter's choice to deny Him. He faced Judas's choice to betray Him. And He faced His own people's choice to murder Him in a brutal way. That's what this table is a sign and a reminder of. This bread that you're about to eat is a sign of Jesus' body and it is a reminder that He gave up His body for His people, you, His church. This cup is a sign of Jesus' blood and a reminder that He made the choice to shed His blood for you so that despite, despite all your bad choices and all the ones that are still yet to come, In his death, you would find life. This table is for you who have trusted your lives to Jesus and are not dependent on your choices, but on his choice of his people. If this is not you, if you cannot confidently call yourself a Christian, let this cup and this bread pass you by and instead consider, have you made all the right choices? Can you stand behind your choices when faced with a holy and perfect God? If not, I would invite you to see the good news of the gospel. That we are not the sum of our choices, but instead, we wholly depend on the fact that God has chosen a people for himself. Likewise, if you do call yourself a Christian, but you are living in unrepentant sin, I would urge you to repent And make the kind of choices that a new life in Jesus Christ enables you to make. If you cannot do that, if you are choosing willfully to live in sin instead, I would invite you to let these elements pass you by for the time being. And instead, repent. Go to your Savior and acknowledge that your choices have not been that worthy of the name of Christian. 
but for you who are in Christ, for you who are struggling to make the kind of choices that please God, come to this table. If you are in Christ but are doubting His love for you or His affection for you, let this table remind you of the love and mercy of our God in Jesus Christ. Let it strengthen you and encourage you. As our elders come forward to to serve you this table, please join me as we pray. Dear God, thank you for this table. Thank you for all that it represents. Thank you that in Jesus Christ we have a Savior who has loved us despite our choices. Thank you that in Him we have hope. But thank you also that we do not simply acknowledge and celebrate the fact that Jesus is perfect. Thank you that we also celebrate the fact that in Him, He has begun a good work in us, one that He will bring about to completion. Thank you that He has begun the process by which we can make the choices, the kind of good, God-glorifying, holy choices that we could never make on our own with our old heart. As we come to this table, I pray that we would be reminded of that truth and strengthened to do all that you have called and commanded us to do. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. On the night of the Lord's first supper, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Troubles assail and dangers affright Though friends should all fail and foes all unite Yet one thing secures us whatever betide The scripture assures us the Lord will provide The birds without barn or storehouse are fed From them let us learn to trust for our bread. His saints, what is fitting, shall ne'er be denied. So long as it's written, the Lord will provide. We may, like the ships, by tempest be tossed on perilous deeps, but cannot be lost. Though Satan enrages the wind and the tide, the promise engages, the Lord will provide. His call we obey like Abram of old, not knowing our way, but faith makes us bold. For though we are strangers, we have a good guide. And trust in all dangers, the Lord will provide. The body Christ chose to give for his people. Take and eat. In the same way, Jesus also took the cup after the supper and said, This cup that is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. 
When Satan appears to stop up our path and fill us with fears, we triumph by faith. He cannot take from us, though oft he has tried this heart-cheering promise the Lord will provide. He tells us we're weak, our hope is in vain. The good that we seek, we ne'er shall obtain. But when such suggestions our spirits have plied, this answers all questions the Lord will provide. No strength of our own or goodness we claim, yet since we have known, the Savior's great name. In this our strong tower, for safety we hide. The Lord is our power, the Lord will provide. When life sinks apace and death is in view, the word of His grace shall comfort us through. No fearing, no doubting, with Christ on our side, we hope to die shouting, the Lord will provide. The forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. Thank you, Lord, for this table. Though we may grow accustomed to it, though we may not always meditate on all that it means, thank you for the encouragement, for the strength that it gives your people. May we remember the love of our Lord and Savior. May we remember the kindness that he has towards his people. May it strengthen us and encourage us. We pray this all. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen. I invite you to stand as we sing together, remembering that because God uses bad choices and blesses good choices, because He rules sovereign over and despite all our choices, because of that, all will, shall, is, and must be well. Through the love of God our Savior, all will be well. Free and changeless is His favor, all is well. Precious is the blood that healed us, perfect is the grace that sealed us. Strong the hand stretched forth to shield us, all must be well. Though we pass through tribulation, all will be well. Ours is such a full salvation, all is well. Happy still in God confiding, fruitful if in Christ abiding, steadfast through the Spirit's guiding, all must be well.
we expect a bright tomorrow, all will be well. Faith can sing through days of sorrow, all is well. On our Father's love relying, Jesus every need supplying. Yes, in living or in dying, all must be well. On our Father's love relying, Jesus every need supplying. Yes, in living or in dying, all must be well. Because all must be well, go now with this blessing of the Lord. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Go now in that peace. Just remember, Sunday school begins at 10 o'clock. The children will meet upstairs and everybody else meet in here. When he was uh, still a presidential candidate, Ronald Reagan gave a speech entitled, A Time for Choosing. Now in the speech that was mostly about tax reform and other political things, he, he addresses deeper issues. He notes that these individual smaller issues are really about the larger issue of freedom, an issue which he thought was about right and wrong, good versus evil. So he writes, If we are to believe that nothing is worth the dying, when did this begin? Should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery rather than dare the wilderness? Should Christ have refused the cross 
Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have refused to fire the shot heard round the world, are we to believe that all the martyrs of history died in vain? He continues, We can persevere for our children this, sorry, we can preserve, different word, we can preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, which he believed to be the United States of America. Or we can sentence them to take the first step in a thousand years of darkness. And here's where, here's the reason I'm reading this entire speech is for these next two lines. If we fail, at least let our children and our children's children say of us, we justified our brief moment here. We did all that could be done. Throughout the series of in Esther, we're going to rightly emphasize what Scripture emphasizes, which is God's sovereignty, God's providence, God's control over all things. But where do our choices fit into that? Does Scripture say nothing of our choices? Or does Scripture command uh, of us certain choices in light of God's providence? We, you looked last week at the shorter catechism. I'll do you one better. Let's look at the larger catechism. Larger catechism question 18 asks this question. What are God's works of providence? And the answer is, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his glory. Kids, another way to explain God's providence is to say, that God is completely in control of everything. He makes everything happen the way He wants it to. So it's not hard to meditate on that and come to the conclusion that our choices don't matter. It's not a far leap to say, it doesn't matter what I choose, God's going to make happen whatever He wants to make happen. But I believe that through this passage and many others in scriptures, we are actually called to make good and wise choices. And what we'll see from this passage and from other scriptures is that God, number one, uses bad choices. He blesses good choices, and yet He still rules despite our choices. He uses bad choices, blesses good choices, and rules despite our choices. So, we see a few bad choices in this story, don't we? We see the king making some unwise choices to promote Haman and to give him money and soldiers despite not really elaborating on Haman's plan. So we could call those unwise choices, but we see past unwise, we see evil choices on the part of Haman wanting to eliminate an entire people. What does God do with these bad choices, these unwise and evil choices? He uses them. He uses them for his most holy and wise purposes. Haman's plan eventually exalts Mordecai to a position of power where God's people are safer and prosperous. Now, I want to pause here before we go on because this this next part is really going to affect how you hear the rest of the sermon. Um, You have to understand how Scripture uses passages like this in order to understand how we apply them. Many passages of the Bible present an extreme example in order to make a point that if this extreme thing is true, then this other, more ordinary, more common, 
less extreme thing is all the more reliable, is all the more true. For example, when you're buying a, a bookcase, which if you remember is that thing that has many bookshelves on it. Thank you. How do you want those shelves to be rated? Right? Do you, do you want the shelves that are rated 10 pounds because that's probably all you'll put on them? No. You want, the ad, you want the guy on the TV selling it to you saying, hey, you can put a rhinoceros on these bookshelves. It'll hold anything you need, right? You want the extreme example. Because if, hypothetically, those shelves could hold a rhinoceros, what else could they hold? Anything you could ever put on them. You want that confidence. So, this is what God does with his word. You probably will never be faced with an opportunity to thwart an assassination assassination of a ruler, right? You probably will never be put in that position. And yet, if you are, God has proven himself worthy. And if you are not, God has proven himself worthy in the larger circumstances so you can have confidence in the smaller circumstances. That's what God does. God provides us comfort. God provides these extreme circumstances like parting the Red Sea to show you his power. He provides these extreme circumstances to give you comfort. That's what he does. What do you do? Well, look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. What does Mordecai do in the midst of this extreme circumstance? When he learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. What did everyone else do? In every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. You see that word lamenting. All throughout scripture, that is what God's people are commanded to do. And this word lamenting, we can describe it as crying out to God in sadness and anger because we trust God that he is in control. We don't cry out to God because we think he's out of control. We cry out to God precisely because we know he is in control of all things. Do not think that God is teaching you through Esther that because he is in control, you should never be sad or angry. You should just put on a smile in all circumstances. No. Precisely because God is in control, precisely because God has shown you and revealed to you the way this world is supposed to work, you are called, you are commanded, you are encouraged to lament when sin is happening in your heart, when sin is happening all around you. Cry out to God as the psalmist does in Psalm chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. We see him cry out, Why, O Lord, why do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in time of trouble? In arrogance, don't you see? In arrogance, the the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. Do you see the passion? Do you see the desire to right wrongs? We are called. This is modeled for us. But we don't stop there because we trust. In the midst of that, we trust that God is good that he is carrying out his most holy, his most wise, and his most perfect plan. And so the psalm ends with these words. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. 
you will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed, to that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. That, that is the desire. That is what we are called to do, to lament in the midst of trust. Preach that to yourself, Christian. When your own heart is, is deceiving you into believing that you have made too many bad choices for God to love you or for God to use you, preach this to yourself. The Lord desires to do good to the fatherless, to the oppressed. The Lord uses broken people. The Lord uses people who realize that they can do nothing in and of themselves. The Lord uses the humble. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. When the choices of those around you, when the bad choices of those around you cause you to suffer, remember that nothing is happening to you outside of your good God's command. And when the kings of this world make decisions, when the kings of this world make bad choices that are evil and unwise, remind yourself of the oh-so-comforting truth that Jesus Christ, the one true king, is sitting on his throne. And he is so powerful and he is so awesome that he can use even those things, even those evil things for his good purposes. That is a God worth worshiping. Amen? But none of that, none of that means that your choices don't matter. Just because God uses bad choices does not mean that our choices don't matter. In fact, what we see from this passage and many others is that God, in fact, blesses good choices. Just as certainly as he uses bad choices, he blesses good ones. In Ezekiel chapter 2, what we read, we see these words in verse 21. In those days of King Ahasuerus, we see in verse 21 of uh, Esther chapter 2, in those days as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, they became angry and they sought to lay hands, read between the lines there, they sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, and this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. That's the situation. There's a plot to harm the king, most likely to kill him, and Mordecai has a choice. Does he stay quiet because it's none of his business, right? Or does he do the right thing? A little bit of context. Uh, Jeremiah comes after Esther in your Bible, but in history, Jeremiah comes about 150-ish years before Esther and Mordecai. So they would have been very familiar with his words. And as we're about to see from, Matt, uh, from Jeremiah chapter 29, Jeremiah is writing, as verse 4 says, to the exiles. And so God commands these words to exiles, to people who have been cast out of their homes, are speaking a different language, and under, are under the rule of a different king. And so Jeremiah writes these words from the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile, he sent them, by the way, from Jerusalem to Babylon. What do you do in the midst of exile? Well, you build houses, obviously, and you live in them. 
and you plant gardens, and you eat their produce, and you take wives, and you have sons and daughters, and you take wives for your sons, and you give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear more sons, and daughters multiply and not decrease. Then we see this. But seek, seek, seek out, actively, proactively seek out the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on behalf of the city, because in its welfare, in its shalom, in its prosperity, in its well-being, you will find yours as well. Exiled from their land, conquered by a foreign nation who who worships false gods, God commanded his people through his prophet to seek the shalom, seek the well-being of godless people. So now Mordecai's choice makes a little bit more sense. Mordecai, verse 22. When this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. Christian, you and I are exiles in this world. This world is not our home. Many of you have ungodly bosses, ungodly friends, ungodly people in authority over you. We live in a, in, in a nation that does not explicitly worship God. And yet, what are we called to do? What are we commanded and enabled through Jesus Christ to do? We are called to seek the welfare of the city because in its welfare, through the most holy, wise, preserving, and governing of our God, we will find our welfare. That is the command. That is, these are the kinds of choices that God blesses. Now, there are three things I want to run through really quickly about how God blesses good choices. Three things very quick. Number one, there is always a good choice. Number two, good choices are not always easy choices. And number three, we make good choices because God blesses them. There's always a good choice. Good choices are not always easy, but God blesses good choices. So number one, there's always a good choice. I'm getting this from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In verse 13, Paul says in the context of temptation and sin, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will with the temptation also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There is never a situation in which you will be forced to choose between evil and evil. There is never a situation in which you will be forced to decide between bad and not quite as bad. There is always a good choice. In the midst of temptation, God will provide. He is faithful. And so he will always provide a God-glorifying choice. It reminds me of uh, Eric Liddell and Chariots of Fire. He was given this false dichotomy. A, you can run on Sunday, which he believed would not glorify God. Or B, don't run in the Olympics at all. And he chose C, I'll just run in a different race altogether. Thank you very much. There is always, there's always a God-glorifying option, even if you cannot see it in the moment. Even though that God-glorifying option may not be the easiest option. 
Take a look at Esther chapter 4, verse 11. Mordecai sends word that Esther needs to go to the king and stop Haman's plan, and Esther replies with these words. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know, basically everyone knows, that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one option, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. That was her option. Option A, do the right thing and potentially die. Or option B, let it go. After all, you're in a foreign land. After all, you might be spared. Again, an extreme example. You, you probably, just playing the odds here, you probably will never be put in a position where you have to either go before a ruler and save a lot of people or not go before a ruler and they all die. You probably will never be faced with that situation. And yet, if God provides a way in this extreme circumstance, how much more so can we be confident that he will provide a way, that he will bless the good choices in our more common, everyday, less extreme circumstances? That is the kind of God we serve. So number one, there's always a good choice. Number two, good choices are not always easy choices. But number three, God blesses those good choices. And we have to believe that. In Matthew chapter 6, which we looked at in some detail in Sunday school, Jesus speaks about three things, giving, praying, and fasting. And on all three topics, he gives a warning in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus goes on to say, don't give so that others can see you give. Don't pray so that others can see how holy you are. And don't fast so that others can see how spiritually committed you are. Why? Because those things won't happen no, actually, because those things might happen. And you don't actually want that. Jesus doesn't say, don't give so that others might see how generous you are because that'll never happen. No, he says, don't do that because if you do, that's it. That's the end. That's your reward. That's all you get. But if, in fact, we make the good choices that God has enabled us to make in Christ Jesus... God blesses those choices. That's why Jesus goes on to say near the end of Matthew chapter 6, to store up treasures, lay up treasures for yourself in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. Seek the reward that God gives rather than the rewards of men. And Jesus can say this because when we are in him, when we trust our lives to him, our old heart that tended more towards selfishness than love, our old heart that tended more towards greed than giving, our old heart that sought what brought immediate pleasure rather than lasting joy, that heart has been replaced and is continually being changed more into the heart of Jesus than it was before. That is the good news of the gospel. That is what enables us to make choices that we could never make on our own, the kinds of choices that Psalm 1 calls the blessed way, the kinds of choices that God delights in and is for our good. 
So as we read all throughout Scripture, Christian, I encourage you, do good works. Remain steadfast. Fight the temptations of your heart. Love your neighbor, even your enemy. Do all of these things. Do all that you can to justify your brief moment here on earth. To say that you did all that you could. Do all of those things. Work hard. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do all of those things. Because yes, God blesses good choices. But I would also encourage you to rest. I would also encourage you not to do those things with panic. I would also encourage you to do those things with a bold confidence. Because just as God blesses good choices and uses bad choices, He still rules despite whatever choices we might make. That is my and your great comfort in the midst of all this. In chapter 4, word reaches Esther about Haman's plan to eliminate her people. And as you just saw, Mordecai tells her to do something about it because, yes, God is sovereign. God is in complete control. But the way he exercises that control is through human choices, through the choices that we make, through the decisions that he has ordained for us to make. So he tells Esther to act, do all that can be done. So Mordecai sends a reply, Esther chapter 4, verse 13. He says, Do not think to, to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. And then he inserts this piece of theology that I really want us to chew on. He says this, For, right, do, not, do all that you can, For, if you keep silent, relief and deliverance will still rise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. Do you see the theology packed in this tiny, tiny verse? Your choices matter, Esther. If you don't do the right thing, if you keep silent, you and your father's house will die. Choices have consequences. And yet on a grander scale, God is not dependent on you. If you don't speak up, Somebody will. If you don't do what you're supposed to, God will still carry out his purposes. If you lie, Christian, there are consequences. And yet God's truth remains. If you sin, Christian, there are consequences. You've all felt them. I'm I'm not saying anything new. But rest in the fact. Rest that God's plan still remains. God is still carrying out his purposes. Your choices matter, but you cannot thwart the plans of a good and sovereign God. And that is cause for rejoicing and worship. God still rules despite our choices. You cannot mess up so badly that God, sorry, yeah, no, me too. No idea what I just did. That's God's way of telling you to pay attention, I guess. God still rules despite our choices. You cannot mess up so badly that you can mess up God's plans. I'm just going to not move from now on. There's a glorious inevitability to the providence of God that gives you freedom and peace to make decisions. It's kind of like the real estate market right now. 
if you don't buy it, don't worry, somebody will, right? Like you don't you don't have to worry that if I don't buy something, it's just gonna stay there. No. It'll it'll be bought, it'll be fine, it'll be okay. Some of us have made grave errors. We we have sinned greatly, so much so that we doubt God's love. We doubt if God can really forgive even me. I encourage you to look at the history of the Bible. To look at how God used a great sinner like David and made him the king from which Jesus would come. I encourage you to look at Paul, the murderer of Christians, and see that God rules. God made him the the majority author of the New Testament. God can and is using his people to to carry out his purposes, and yet he still rules. So yes, we should lament. I encourage you to do so, trusting in God. We should rejoice and trust that God blesses our good choices. Our choices matter. And we should fight to make the right choice, even when it is not the easy choice. We should do all those things. But most of all, and don't miss this, most of all, we should rest in the fact that God rules despite our choices and that should lead us to worship. That should lead you to worship even when you do not understand the plans of God, even when you look at the course of history or your own life and you say, how can this be? How can God possibly use this circumstance for his glory? How can God possibly use this person? How can God possibly use these terrible choices? I encourage you to remember the words of Paul in Romans chapter 11. I'm going to ask you, uh, if you would, to read these with me, to, to internalize them, to think about what you are saying as we say this all together. Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of a Lord Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Jesus Christ died for you, his people. Jesus Christ sits on his throne and is working all things for his good and the good of of His people. Trust in that. Rest in that. And let that enable you to make the kind of choices that bring Him glory and are for your good.